I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. I won't be reading Ephesians chapter 1 again. I've preached several sermons here from Ephesians 1. Then, by the grace of God, we moved into Ephesians 2 and finished, finally, the first three verses of Ephesians 2. But you follow along as I read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. But you were dead in the trespass in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in thy sight. For our good and for your glory we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. In Ephesians 1, we have seen God's plan of redemption from a heavenly perspective. God the Father chose us before the foundation of the world in verses 4 through 6. God the Son shed his blood to redeem us, verses 7 through 12. God the Holy Spirit sealed us and is the guarantee of our inheritance, verses 13 and 14. The entire Trinity was actively involved in eternity past for our redemption. 
what we see in Ephesians 1, the work of the Father in eternity past, the work of the Son in time on earth, and the work of the Holy Spirit, yes, in time on earth, preparing us for eternity future. And then, as I've mentioned before in Ephesians chapter 2, we see, again, the work of the Trinity. But we see the application of God's plan of redemption for us. And we see that also in three-time perspectives. One, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That was verses 1 to 3. Today we'll be looking at God's nature and our new nature, salvation by grace through faith. We won't get to all of those 10 verses. That's something that God is doing in our lives at a particular moment in time with a progress going forth. But third, in verses 11 through 22, we see that God has prepared us for a new community, brothers and sisters in Christ, and a new nearness with him. So what we were, what God did to save us in time, and what God is molding us to become. This morning we begin with this second part, the middle part, and we'll be looking at verses 4 through 7, seeing the new nature of God and God's work in our lives. You recall from verses 1 to 3 in chapter 2, that we deserved nothing but the eternal judgment and wrath of God. Nothing. As sons of disobedience, there at the end of verse 2, chapter 2, we noted that this does not mean simply disobedient sons, but rather that we are the sons and daughters, if you please, the offspring of Adam and Eve. Our very nature is disobedience. You know, we don't have to teach our children how to disobey. It comes naturally. Not quite so much with grandchildren, okay? No, that's not true. We are sinners by nature. Also, we were by nature the children of wrath there at the end of verse 3. We saw that a few weeks ago. As sinners by nature and by choice, we were under the wrath of God. Not a pleasant position. And certainly not what people puffed up in their misguided sense of pride and narcissism want to hear. They don't want to be told that they're sinners. They don't want to be told that they're under the wrath and under the judgment of God. But until we know how helpless and hopeless we really are, we will think we have no need of a Savior. They, the world, 
write off the gospel message as something that other people need, but not what I need. Certainly not me. I may not be perfect, but, you know, the good things that I do completely outweigh the bad things. Besides, as we noted a few weeks ago, they think, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And I can always say, I have no regrets for I did it my way. So the world is blindly running helter-skelter on a fast pace to eternal judgment. It's almost like a race to see who can get to hell first with the most bragging rights. But they are clueless. And in Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3, we see that we were just like them. Outside of the grace of God, we were no better. We were the sons of disobedience and the children of wrath. Hopeless and helpless, hell-bound sinners. But God. The first two words between our pitiful condition and what God does to change us. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones calls these two words, but God, the Christian message to the world. It is a message of complete contrast between the nature of man in verses 1 to 3 and the nature of God that we will see shortly in verses 4 and 5. It's a contrast between what we deserve and what God has done for us in verses 6 and 7. It is a message of turning our hopelessness and helplessness into redemption and everlasting life. We were sinners under wrath and condemnation. But God. But God makes the difference between hell and heaven. We deserve judgment, condemnation, and the wrath of God, but God intercedes on our behalf, not because of anything in us. Remember, we were dead sinners. Charles Spurgeon, and this I'm pulling from memory, said, if it were not for election from the foundation before the foundation of the world, he would never have been chosen. Had God been looking at him as a person, God would not have chosen me. Not because of anything that we have done, but the nature of God seen in verses 4 and 5 is exactly what we needed. And I read Ephesians 2 verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ by grace. You have been saved. 
Now, certainly this is not a comprehensive theological uh, explanation of all of the attributes of God. But these three things that the Apostle mentions here are are, are clear in our redemption. The root of our salvation is grounded in God's rich mercy, God's great love for us, and grace. Mercy is the withholding of what we deserve. Our eternal judgment and the wrath of God, which was displayed so clearly in verses 1 to 3. God did not give us what we deserved. He showed mercy on you and on me. Grace is the giving of uh, to us what we do not deserve. We do not deserve forgiveness, redemption, salvation. God gives us that freely. And love called in our verses here, the great love with which he loved us, verse 4, is particular in its nature. It is particular to the redeemed. It says here in verse 4, God being rich, in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Now, this here is seen very particular from the pen of Paul. He is specific under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he addresses God's love for us. We talked about that some, uh, even at a little bit of length the last time I was with you. Paul writes to the saints in Ephesians 1 and verse 1. And he's been using the first person uh, personal pronoun uh, in chapter 1. I, we, and you, plural. Here in the south that would be y'all. And in Ephesians 1, or Ephesians 2 and verse 1, he addresses these now saints as you were, past tense plural, dead in your trespasses and sins. And then in verse 3 of chapter 2, Paul includes himself, among whom we, second person plural, all once lived like the rest of the world. Now, That's a very bleak picture for the unregenerate. And it includes us before we were redeemed, before Christ made a difference in our lives. But here in Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5, Paul singles out those who were uh, God had chosen before the foundation of the world from Back in Ephesians 1 and verse 4. As the recipients of the great love 
of God, which he bestowed on us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. And so we see God's wrath and judgment for the unregenerate, but his rich mercy, great love and grace for those he has chosen before the foundation of the world. There's an old Scottish song that paraphrases this. Tis the mercy of our God that all our hopes began. His mercy saved our souls from death and washed our souls from sin. In verse 5, Paul continues to remind us of our condition. He says that, you know, God uh, has loved us with, with this great love. And even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, so he couples this quickening power of God that made us alive together with Christ with the fact that we were dead in our trespasses. This is clearly and solely by the mercy and grace of God. We deserve judgment and condemnation, but God's mercy withholds what we deserve. And by grace, he gives us what we do not deserve, salvation. Which, in Ephesians 1.7, Paul declared, In him we have this redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. We'll look at that a little bit later here this morning. But Paul said this so clearly, again, in Romans 5 and verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So did to demonstrate the contrast here in Ephesians 2, Paul is moving from our death in trespasses and sins, the controlling influence of the world, the devil, and our own sinful passions and lusts. We've looked at all of this before. He goes beyond us being the sons of disobedience and the children of wrath to the rich mercy, great love, and grace of God, which totally transforms us. That contrast sees the opposite sides of the two words, but God. Sinners under the wrath of God but God's rich mercy, great love and grace for you and for me. So let's move from looking at the nature of, of God, our Redeemer, to what God has done in our redemption. And this is basically the new nature of man. Again, 
you know, Paul could have addressed a whole lot of things. And if I was dealing strictly topically this morning, we would be going over a lot more things here. But I want to look specifically, exegetically, at what Paul says here in Ephesians 2. Though many more truths could be mentioned, Paul identifies these three specific truths truths in our passage, stating what God has done for us, and then he states a fourth truth on why God has done this. In verse 5, we're going to see that God has made us alive with Christ. In verse 6, the first part, we will see that God raised us up with Christ. And in the second half of verse 6, that God seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. And then in verse 7, we're going to see why all of this was done. Just in a little teaser here, it was done for the glory of God alone. We are the beneficiaries of God working all things for his glory. Verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In these first three, the apostle gets to the heart of our redemption. The ground of salvation is by grace through faith. And it resides in the work of Christ alone. But it goes beyond the atonement to us being united with Christ. Paul often uses the compound verbs uh, beginning with the Greek preposition sin, S-Y-N in Greek. Together with is the meaning in English. Together with, and then another word, making a compound word. It indicates the believer's reunion or union with Christ. We have died with Christ. We see that in Romans 6 and verse 8 and Philippians 3 and verse 10. We were crucified with Christ. Crucified with, being the compound word, Galatians 2.20 and Romans 6.6. We were buried with Christ. We, um, in Romans 6.4 in Colossians 2.12. And we were raised with Christ in Colossians 2.12. And we live with Christ, Romans 6 and verse 8. In our passage, we see that we are made alive with, we are raised up with, and we are seated with Christ because of God's rich mercy, great love, and grace. First then, in verse 5, God made us alive together with Christ. Made us alive together with, the compound word, Christ. In theological terms, we call this quickening. But simply put, the only way we who were spiritually dead 
could be brought to life was the work of God demonstrated in the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God calls those whom he has chosen before the foundation of the world, those who were just like the rest of mankind, dead in their trespasses and sin, to a new life in Christ, with Christ. Jesus uses similar language to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. You must be born again. Earlier in John's John's gospel, in in chapter 1, in verses uh, 12 and 13, we read, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Born again, not by our will, not by our flesh, but of God. Back in Ephesians 2, at the end of verse 5, Paul says, By grace you have been saved. It's God's work. It's not our work. And Paul's going to develop that more in verses 8 and 9 and, and 10. And the Lord willing, we'll look at that another time. But back here, uh, in our verses, we see that God's grace, which we understand as a, one of the five solas from the Reformation, that we are saved by grace alone. I particularly like the way Augustus Top Lady penned it. We, we sung it a little bit earlier here. Uh, In 1763, in his beloved hymn, The Rock of Ages. And and there's just a couple of lines in here I wanted to highlight. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. And again, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Friends, I know that many today think that they are responsible for getting the lost saved. With all of their good intentions, they are misguided. Only God can quicken the heart of a dead sinner. There is no amount of manipulation that man can do to change the heart of one who is dead in trespasses and sin. False evangelism brings false believers into churches. While these churches may be growing in numbers, so many of them lack in transformed lives. Now, I've got a couple of quotes here from Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon, from the last half of the 1800s said, among many other things, I believe that one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. Again, he said, a time will come when instead of shepherds feeding the sheep, 
and the church, the church will have clowns entertaining the goats. And he said that back in the 1800s. Another quote. The devil has seldom done a cleverer thing that hinting to the church that part of their mission is to provide entertainment for the people with a view to winning them. Providing amusement for the people is nowhere spoken of in the scripture as a function of the church. The need is biblical doctrine. So understanding, uh, so understood and felt that it sets men on fire. The idea here is entertainment may fill churches, but doctrine fills hearts. An application here. Let us never shy away from biblical doctrine and biblical evangelism just because there are abuses that are prevalent. We should not cease to do evangelism. Rather, let us be all the more involved to proclaim the truth of Scripture and the gospel message. So, we see that God has made us alive together with Christ. Second, in verse 6, God raised us up with him. In union with Christ, we are not only made alive from death, our death in sin, but we are also resurrected in the nature of Christ. This regeneration, transformation, does more than just give us a new start on life. It unites us with the life of Christ. Positionally, he is in us and we are in him. And yet, we are also united with him. More than just being in him. Romans 6 and verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Buried with him in baptism, that we might walk and raised from, uh, like with Christ, that we might walk in newness of life. Romans 8 and verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. Conformed to be Christ-like in our lives. Earlier in Ephesians 1, I mentioned that the theme uh, in, in Ephesians, a dominant theme in Ephesians is in Christ, in him, in the beloved, or similar phrases that they were central to the book of Ephesians. 
Here, now, Paul is using a different preposition with a slightly different meaning. We are theologically in Christ and he is in us, but we are also with Christ and he is with us. In pictures position, while with pictures union. Our position is in Christ, but we are united with Christ. Two important truths. Now, there's an application here. Because we are united with Christ, we are to be different in the world, in the midst of the spiritually lost and dead. God is conforming us to Christ, making us more and more into the image of him. We are to reflect his light in the midst of darkness. That was also in the passage that that, uh, Jake had read earlier this morning. This is why the early, this is what the early church did. They took seriously the commission of Christ to go out into a lost world and proclaim truth. It's a beautiful song we love to sing. Across the street or around the world, the mission's still the same. Proclaim and live the truth in Jesus' name. That's application number two. Third this morning. In the second half of verse six, we've seen first that God made us alive together with Christ, then that God raised us up with him. Now that God has seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, seated us with him in the heavenly places, with, in Christ Jesus. Both prepositions are used here. With him, in the heavenly places, in him. Remember the preposition with speaks of our union with Christ and the preposition in speaks of our position in Christ. Because of our union with Christ, and that he is now in the heavenly places, our position in Christ is now in the heavenly places. You and I, believers in Christ, are positionally in heaven already because we are united with him in his death, in his burial, And in his resurrection. He's in the heavenly places. Our position in Christ. Is now in the heavenly places. Beloved this truth gives me great hope. As bad as the world gets. And it's getting worse all the time. With Christ. Being in him. With him and in him, I'm already in glory. I'm already in heaven. 
that was the surety, the guarantee that the Holy Spirit had given us back in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. He has sealed us and is the guarantee of our redemption in the future. We're already in heaven with Christ. Now, this is significant here. The phrase is, is, upon, is, is upon the blessings, uh, the union uh, with Christ that he brings even now in anticipation of the glorious then. I am already now anticipating the glory then when I will be released from the sins of this world, the heartaches, the pain and the sufferings, and in glory. So application three this morning. Beloved believer, do not let the things of this world distract you from the things of heaven. Since the fall of Adam and Eve, everything has been getting worse. Even the creation itself groans for redemption. Listen to the words of Paul in Romans 8, verses 19 to 22. For I consider that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the uh, revealing of the sons of God. For the creation is subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. We see the picture. You and I, with creation itself, are suffering. We're groaning in this world. I'm not trying to paint a bleak picture. Christians are here to make a difference. See that in just a moment too. But this is not the end of it for you and for me, beloved. God has eternity for us where we will be freed from all of the suffering and pain and sin of this present age. We can pray with the, or let me ask the question, can you pray with the Apostle John at the end of the book of Revelation? Come, Lord Jesus. My heart longs to be home. I'm weary in this life. I will use every day you give me for your glory. But come, Lord Jesus. Finally, in verse 7. Why has God made us alive together with Christ? Why has he raised us up with him? And why has God seated us with him uh, in heavenly places in Christ? Verse 7 declares, so that in the coming ages he might show 
the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Beloved, we are trophies of God's sovereign saving grace. We are on display throughout the ages. When your unsaved neighbors see you, what they are seeing is God's work in you, transforming you from being a broken sinner into saints, the sons and daughters of God, redeemed by the blood of his eternal son, our Savior. They are seeing the Holy Spirit conforming you into the image of Christ. We're not there yet. Oh, but there is progress. John Newton, who wrote the beloved hymn, Amazing Grace in 1779, said this, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. And so this fourth application. Let us commit ourselves to be ever vigilant vessels. Portraying a life and a message that brings glory to God. Let us never forget that until God calls us home, he has a purpose for us here on earth. God is using us as a testimony of his power to change lives. Lost sinners around us may not want to hear the gospel, but they will notice lives that are transformed by the gospel. We do not know when whom God will save, that's not our responsibility. Our responsibility is to faithfully proclaim the truth to all the nations. God's responsibility is open the eyes and ears of, and the hearts of sinners who so desperately need that transformation. God's responsibility is to save his chosen before those he has chosen before the foundation of the world. Again from Spurgeon. The Bible is not the light of the world. It is the light of the church. But the world does not read the Bible. The world reads Christians. You are the light of the world. Matthew 5 verse 14. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works, and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. Verse 16. Spurgeon said, It is the whole business of the whole church to preach the whole counsel of God, the gospel, to the whole world. The whole business of the whole church to preach the whole gospel to the whole world. Beloved, we are on mission. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for transforming our lives by your glory. And we ask that you would give us grace to live for your glory. 
as a testimony of your transforming power before our neighbors, before those with whom we work or go to school. Use us as instruments in your hands to continue to reach those for whom you have called. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.